are back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We are bringing you part eight of our James Bond character study. We are currently reviewing the third film of Daniel Craig donning the suit as 007, the critically renowned and acclaimed and, my God, Oscar-winning Skyfall is going to be on deck for you all today. I am your co-host, Mike One, co-host also Mike in a moment here. I guess before we get into Craig's latest... We had a couple headlines about Bond in the last week or so that we wanted to just make comment on as there was a strong rumor that one person was going to take up the mantle for 007 going forward. And then that rumor kind of died down with its momentum. And then another rumor kicked up a couple days, uh, just a couple days ago. So Tom Hardy was rumored to be taking over as James Bond, or at least there was a strong rumor out there that made its way to a couple of credible websites that said he was going to be next in line. And then it seemed that was nothing more than a rumor. Who knows who pitched that or where it leaked from. And then just two days ago, uh, an outlet uh, such as People Magazine was on top of Henry Cavill saying he would jump at the chance to play Bond. So, Michael, uh, what we thought was going to be Lashana Lynch taking over seems to be still up in the air. It's unfortunate because... I'm just going to cut you off. No, are we not going to do debate style or... <laughs> we're not going to be like... We're not going to do the presidential debate style or... Ah, God. Well, thank, <laughs> look, thank God we have a Bond episode today, number one. Uh, but, uh, yeah, last night was straight out of your <laughs> wrestling program. Hell, it was straight out of hell. <laughs> it, it was awful. It was a nightmare. But, yes, thank God we have a Bond program. Yes. We're going to try not to make many debate jokes today. <laughs> Beyond that one, and even that we'll do one is pushing it. Even that was pushing. I hope <laughs> it didn't push people over the edge. But so I'll bring it back with a wrestling reference number two, and 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 that is I want Tom Hardy and Henry Cavill to fight for this role. Yes, and the loser has to be the villain. The loser has to go heel. They both are double O's, and nobody knows in this origin story that we get in the next Bond movie which is which Bond will become James Bond. They're oh. both named Jim. We don't know who their last name. It's Jim One and Jim Two, and they basically have to fight to become James Bond 007. How about that? Wow! Well, Hire me, MGM. Hire yeah. me, Neil Purvis. Mr. Wade, I'm ready. I'm ready to be the third wheel in your next Bond movie. Aside from being both characters needing to be named Jim for that to work, which I think would be laughable. I like that idea. I really like that idea. You sell it with the two A-list names and you don't know who's going to come out. Like, we're definitely getting a new Bond out of this. We just don't know who. I'm all on board for that. Can you? And, and it ends with whoever wins, he, he, he lays down the line. Bond, James Bond, and now you realize who the Bond is. And then Lashana Lynch shoots him between the eyes. <laughs> Why is that joke always funny? Uh, it's it's a killer. It's, it's guaranteed laugh every time. <laughs> All right, we do have, uh, as our usual Bond character study episodes are laid out, we will have a non-spoiler section, and then we will have a spoiler warning followed by a spoiler section. If you've not seen Skyfall, if you forget what happens, if it's been a while since you have seen it, don't worry. We're not going to spoil the movie for you in this first part. We'll be talking in this first part about Craig getting back into character about the box office and the history the historical significance of Skyfall after the spoiler section is when we will give you all the spoilers you can handle about the movie and the plot itself along with some really cool catchy Bond-like punny titles for those sections uh, but we will start like I said with getting into character Daniel Craig is back once again four years after his last turn as the double O agent Mike what do we have 
So one of the major ways Craig kind of helped this production right off the bat was to recruit the eventual director, Sam Mendes, a process that began when apparently they both saw a play together. And, of course, Craig had acted for Mendes in Road to Perdition, the movie he played, uh, just Mm -hmm. a deliciously evil bad guy in that film. Loved it, by the way. That's an all-time Father's Day movie, I think, between me and my dad where we went to the the cinemas together. Oh, really? It was was a nice father-son moment, by the way. Anyway, uh, Mendes didn't think action movies were necessarily what he wanted to do and if you watch road to perdition it has some action moments but Mm -hmm. it's really more of a drama so he had to be won over by the producers but he he did talk to the producers he did have craig pitch him you know all of his ideas for this film for a while and the fact that it was the 50th anniversary and mendez was a fan of the franchise so he was sold yeah, Sam Mendes, of course, of American Beauty, Road to Perdition, Jarhead, Revolutionary Road, Away We Go. After this Bond movie he did 1917, which we just talked about all last Oscar season, uh, he was mm-hmm. the center of a lot of rumors on this film. Did he actually have the film rewritten to lessen the action in favor of the drama? Did the few action sequences in the movie take so damned long to shoot? Uh, 53 days for the opening sequence is the rumor. Because Sam Mendes was so inexperienced at doing action sequences, he's certainly not the first name you think of directorially when you need an action franchise or an action installment to go down. Mm -hmm. Did they insist on too many practical effects? And should there have been at least one tsunami surfing scene? These were all questions we needed answered by Sam Mendes, or at least were all started as rumors for him do it, taking this project. They're at the tips of every tongue writing for the trades, Naturally. yes, in 2012, <laughs> especially that tsunami. Uh, look, I'm curious at how you would compare this film by Mendes to the last film we just reviewed, Quantum of Solace, by Mark Forster, another you know, dramatist, a pure dramatist from uh, movies like Monster's Ball, right? I mean, he's not known for action movies himself, Mark Forster, even though he did maybe, you know, one that's adjacent to, mm. to an action film. Anyway, I forget what that is. Stay, right? Stay. Eh, and that's, that's more of a thriller, psychological thriller. I'm trying to think. Mark Forster, he didn't do The Jumper. That's not Mark Forster. No, I don't think so. Hang on. Uh, that's the Bourne guy. The Bourne guy also did Jumper. I'm World War Z sure. anyway. is what you're thinking of, maybe? Later on, he would do it. So both of these directors would prove to be action directors later on in their careers. But I guess for for at this point, they hadn't really done them. And it's strange that, you know, MGM and the the Broccoli uh, production company, Eon, would, you know, tab these dramatists. And and in Mendy's, you know, case, a theatrical dramatist. So what did you think of this composition? I thought this was able to breathe for the drama scenes. But what did you think overall for the action? Uh, you can tell it definitely wasn't Craig behind going after the Oscars for this one because we saw the Daniel Craig takes the helm and makes James Bond an Oscars vehicle, and it mm-hmm. was so heavy-handed and, and pretty much, I hate to use the term forgettable, but that's what it was. We couldn't really remember what was going on in Quantum of Solace, really, uh, if we remember. We don't. It right. was a couple weeks ago, a month ago. <laughs> no, we don't even remember when we recorded it. So it's it's not the greatest of impactful films and dramas, I would say. So if you're going to take James Bond and turn it into this character study and kind of dissect it and we we really get an origin story here which i'm always loath to do i always think it's you know the writers running out of ideas when they go back to the beginning but this one was handled quite well i thought but you could tell you know sam mendy's I don't think it matters. He's one of those guys that I don't care what kind of genre I have. If you have a chance to have him as your director, I just trust him. Like, let talented people do talented things, and it's one of those things. I think it paid off in spades here. I mean, this is a very, yeah, more, if not the best Bond, certainly one of the more memorable ones. It's it's a top uh, Mount Rushmore Bond, yeah. perhaps. 
However, we're going to get into it. It might be soulless and evil, but that might be Bond. <laughs> As Bond, they all are. <laughs> Bond might be soulless and right. evil. Uh, and I think this movie may prove as much, but we'll, we'll get there. Look, uh, Daniel Craig, we talked about last uh, time that he was heavily involved in writing uh, Quantum of Solace because there was a writer's strike. Now, right. obviously that didn't happen here because Purvis and Wade are back. And, you know, they were supposed to have Peter Morgan, who's known for all of these movies about royalty and world leaders, Frost Nixon, the Queen, Last, Last King of Scotland. But they eventually go with three-time Oscar winner John Logan of Gladiator, Aviator, Hugo. Still, Craig is involved, and he's very collaborative. In fact, he is the driving creative force behind silva's island behind the bad guy island in this film michael Mm -hmm. because he had watched this short documentary about hashima which was a a japanese island abandoned and this documentary was made by swedish filmmaker tomas nordenstad and while craig was filming the girl with the dragon tattoo in sweden he sits down nordenstad in a serious meeting (laughs) to, to pick his brain and take copious notes on that island of hashima while he's there in Sweden filming, you know, another movie. And basically, Nordenstad was interviewed later on, and he's like, I can't believe it. Like, all of these things that we talked about in our long, you know, coffee meeting or lunch meeting wound up in Skyfall. I wonder if having Daniel Craig tied to your production, because he seems like a very hands-on actor, obviously. This isn't the first time. This is only the third Craig movie, and this is the second or third time we're already talking about him being so involved in the production behind the scenes. I wonder if it's seen as, like... Oh, God, here comes another suggestion. (laughs) Yeah, how many of his suggestions fall on the cutting room floor? Well, I guess I'll jump jump ahead, Mike, for a second, because there's there's a YouTube video out there about the fact that Daniel Craig would go shopping in between, you know, a lot of the production shoot days and a lot of his call times. He would just go out in London or wherever he was, and he would love to go shopping. He's a very fashionable guy, obviously. And I've been learning over the last few days and over these last few videos that he gets a lot of his own jackets and whatever into these Bond movies. So he's basically costuming himself in, in, much of the, in, in many ways. Well, he bought a pair of gloves in this movie that he insisted on wearing at some point. <laughs> the problem is, we all know, the gun in this film is only suited to his DNA or to mm-hmm. his palm print or right. whatever. So they actually had to spend millions of dollars. I remember this story when it happened. CGIing mm-hmm. the gloves off of his hands. Otherwise, they would have had to spend tens of millions of dollars reshooting the scene in the skyscraper at Shanghai. So that, right, that doesn't bode <laughs> well for a guy that you want to think has the best intentions for everyone. I'm just spitballing here, but I'm just reading the tea leaves being what they are. Okay. Uh, Daniel Craig, as always, uh, once again, him being James Bond, if he's on set, he's going to get hurt and he's going to yep. get injured. And that's the same that happened here in Taping Skyfall, but where he still does most of his own stunts, he actually kind of got off easy for a change, a question mark, because <laughs> all, in quotes, that happened this time was that during a fight rehearsal, he ended up tearing a calf muscle and needed several weeks to recover. So I guess that's good for him. He was practicing a fight scene, and after kicking a stuntman, he steps back and he hears a snap, a muscle snap. Oh, and Jesus. then he, he's like quoted saying, who the hell did that? Or oh. who, the, who the F did that? Which is a, an actual story that I hear from a lot of people. that, And then I saw in person when one of the coaches on our staff, one of our head coach, in fact, a couple years ago, tore his Achilles tendon and oh. then yelled at 
like everybody around him thinking somebody stepped on his foot, like gave him a flat tire oh, that geez. actually hurt. And then he was like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't walk. That's what that is. That's what that is. Exactly. But it was funny to watch him freak out at everybody around us. And I was like, uh-oh. And I wasn't too far away. I was like five yards away. And he's usually yelling at me for something, but he wasn't yelling at me there. Craig feels like somebody kicked him in the leg and he falls down to one knee. My gloves. <laughs> Exactly. Anyway, Mike, I think Daniel Craig needs to uh, be patted on the back here because the stunts that he was able to do himself, while not maybe Tom Cruise level, I do think he he was incredible in this. And that 53-day long shoot of the opening sequence, Craig did a lot of his own stunts. They had those trains running in between the local train schedules. Oh my so they goodness. had all the stunt trains going in between all the local schedules. And those trains were going and traveling at 40 miles per hour right. with Craig and the stuntmen literally wired to the trains so that they wouldn't fall off and they wouldn't fall off the bridges. That's actually Daniel Craig on top of the bridge with a 300-plus-foot drop stunt fighting that guy. That's Can you amazing. believe it? That's Isn't outstanding. That I mean, never mind that we are trying to get on film and you're actually using the actor to do his own stunts and you're actually using pra- all these practical effects, but behind the scenes and running on these real life tracks, you have this like real life version of the movie Unstoppable going where you have to stop your stunt train and get it the fuck off the tracks for the real trains to come through. So there's not a head on. That's outstanding. Insane. And Craig was like, he didn't mind the 40 mile per hour speed, which if you watch happen in real time on YouTube, they have the, uh, they have a lot of the production footage there. It's crazy. It's going legitimately fast, but he said the speed didn't even bother him. He said what bothered him was the side to side shimmy motions that if anybody's ridden a train before or ridden a subway you always get he said sure. that freaked him the hell out the most <sighs> well i mean look we can uh, we can make fun of mr craig and his gloves all he wants but he's certainly not a lot of actors are signing up to do those kinds of stunt works and again uh, yeah we're not gonna compare him to tom cruise who has legitimately lost his mind right. but uh still nonetheless great work and it showed off on camera and this is still I mean, we're taking our pot shots out of now because this might be one of the uh, best bonds ever as we get into it and talk more about it even though it's warts certainly will show like we said let's talk about the historical significance of the craig performance of the film on the industry itself as well now Mike, we left the box office and awards for this segment on purpose because the historical significance of Skyfall is that Skyfall is the most successful Bond movie ever in terms of both box office and awards. 2012, this thing released November 9th in the U.S. It went on to make $1.108 billion as the highest grossing Bond movie ever made. And that box office could not have come at a better time for MGM, Mike, because we haven't gotten into this yet. They had to shut down this project in 2010, and the reason why Peter Morgan had to leave as a screenwriter was because that this thing had to be shut down, and he had to, he had to go somewhere else to write write another movie. So MGM was facing bankruptcy, and this was like a major major moment in their history where they were going public. They were going to become a publicly traded company, I guess, or make mm-hmm. a public offering of some kind in early 2013. And this box office was made at the end of 2012, right in November. Yeah. There, so this was a boon for them. They became so much more highly valued at the end of the day in, in terms of Wall Street because of what they were able to do. Now, to be fair. 
and, and this is something that we probably should have mentioned at some point in the series till now, but I just, I, I don't know how, you know, solid it is. And I mm-hmm. don't want to talk shit about MGM because they have pulled through so many different times with Bond. But basically, in January, it was being reported that Netflix and Apple were trying to buy the Bond franchise. And th- th- it was rumored that either Barbara Broccoli at Eon or MGM were trying to sell Bond. You wonder, you got, you can't help but wonder if the, the pandemic made it much worse or has exacerbated that situation. Could also be why MGM has decided to keep kicking the can down the road. I mean, they don't want to compromise this box office. If they are looking for a golden ticket out or a golden handshake to go to the different to a different company and have their shares be bought out right. by a conglomerate like Apple, they're going to say, no, 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 we're waiting until we know movies are back and we're going to get every last dollar we can out of No Time to Die to show off how impressive of a uh, you know, franchise we still have here. So it's it could be a savvy business move. Yeah, it's too big to fail, yeah. and it's really too much of their bottom line to – just right. risk it's too much of their bottom line to risk so i mean if you even half the bond franchise what do you think that that's got to be a billion dollars easy if not multiple uh multiples to, bu- to buy it going forward i would I think mean, right think about what all the fox properties sold for i mean yeah. that was like wasn't that like ridiculous like eight billion that disney bought all of? i know it's a quantity rather than quality here but bond is just every time reliable yeah reliable, reliable hundreds of millions of profit and what does Netflix care about that, you know? <laughs> Critics love this movie, Skyfall, as well. The critical reception is a very high. We're talking best picture kind of territory. 81 Metascore here. 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's on 377 critic reviews. Audiences loved it as well. 86% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. That on 373,000 votes. And it carries a 7.7 out of 10 on 621,000 ratings on IMDb. And, and that matters, too, because you see the critical scores basically transferring to the awards that this movie wound up winning. Of course, it won those two Oscars, like you said at the beginning of the show. Best Original Song to Adele and Paul Epworth for Skyfall. It also won Best Sound Editing. It got three other nominations, Mike. Roger Deakins, who we're going to talk about a bunch in this episode for cinematography, yeah. original score Thomas Newman, who can never win. Basically, <laughs> he, he he's on an even worse streak than Deacons. And then sound mixing, uh, it, it was involved in both of those. Uh, the Baftas, it had eight Bafta noms, which I think we hit, we declared was a high for the series before today. It won two Baftas, including best British film and best film music Thomas Newman, where he can win an award apparently so that's good for him you're safe here thomas it's okay <laughs> so this is the year of argo lay argo won the bafta argo obviously won best picture at the oscars i mean skyfall has a it can go toe-to-toe with a cut like life of pi versus skyfall would you have been that shocked if this beat out life of pi no i'm gonna i'm gonna say it later i like i'm i'm kind of mad that life yeah. of pi won i think life of pi I guess I'll say it now. I think Life of Pi should have gotten credit for VFX. Right. Agree. Agree. This should have gotten credit. For, I don't know. I don't know who Deacons MF'd in the Academy <laughs> to get, you know, people against him in that branch. But he was, you know, he was up against it for a long time there. He was often nominated. I mean, Shawshank Redemption all the way up. 
And then he, he, you know, he went on a string where he was nominated again and again and again before he finally broke through twice in the last three years for us. So, how many televisions uh, you think were broken in the Deacons and Newman household and all those different Oscars where they just kept getting passed up, especially for something like this that's so incredible? I just think he's glad they don't show the you know the five split screen responses <laughs> at the Oscars, or maybe he's just a gentleman and he's never said an ill word to anyone. He he's really does. He just is unlucky. that happy for his contemporaries, unlike you or I would be. We have no idea. We're just jerks right now because we can we can be for some reason. Anyway, I think we're I think we're getting ready to call Bond a jerk by the end of this episode, even though we love him. We love an evil man. Is what Warming ourselves up, certainly. This did well by the Guild Awards as well. Skyfall won at the Art Directors Guild for production design. It won at the Screen Actors Guild, where Skyfall was not only named the winner of Best Stunt Ensemble, but they nominated Javier Bardem yeah. as a SAG nom in Supporting Actor, and most of all, the producers nominated Skyfall at the PGA Awards, too. Yeah, those last two, are those are big, mm-hmm. you know, accolades for any film right. in a year like pg if you're up for pga and you get a sag acting nom you're thinking this is could be a best yeah. picture contender if you got a lot of other undercard awards too so it was definitely a contender that year yeah the more we talk about this the more surprised i am this one was kind of left behind but maybe that's the uh, treatment you get for being an action franchise but otherwise uh, and as you would expect obviously skyfall won best original song at the globes the critics choice and the grammys somehow it didn't do more than song at the globes but it won three choice awards and seven noms and also won a second grammy for thomas newman you would figure like james bond movies would do awesome with the hollywood foreign press right like how is you that would not think, possible yeah I, I don't that there's got to be a backstory to that. There's got to be some in the know story to why the Hollywood Foreign Press has not, you know, given Bond movies more accolades. It's got to be Bond just movie. franchise bias or action movie bias. And Bond is thought of as an action franchise still. And it can't possibly have or maybe they, they're just holding against the times that Bond did try to go the Oscar route and the character portrayal route that they kind of fell on its face a few times. I don't know. There is a bias there because that is the quintessential European blockbuster franchise. Right. So I don't get it. Anyway, like we were saying, I mean, Roger Deakins, he's got to be the hero of this film. I mean, there's just some (laughs) of the most iconic shots in Bond movie history, in my opinion, Mike. I mean, they're all trailer shots, so I'm not really spoiling anything, but the opening hallway sequence where Bond is walking through the shadows into the light, Mm -hmm. barely. Oh, my God. Uh, Bond landing on the rear train car in that hero pose and then (laughs) fixing his cufflinks. The coolest thing ever. Uh, Bond traveling by gondola to that Shanghai casino I just lost it. Like that was the most beautiful thing I ever saw until I saw the finale where Bond is overlooking the fog in Scotland. It's, I mean, I was gorgeous. just in awe of the cinematography of this movie. No wonder, you know, this was the third collaboration for Mendes and Deacons. Why wouldn't Mendes want Deacons with him on this big budget movie? And of course, I think this is the time where the Academy was like Look, we got to get Deacons one of these Oscars at some point. We keep nominating him every year. I mean, his work is just that much of of an appointment viewing for this branch, even if he did MF somebody in terms of our conspiracy theories here today in, in that cinematography <laughs> branch. I don't know, like, but he was just undeniably good for, for like the last 15 years in almost every movie he did. And he felt, his effect on this, it felt so 
unbond-like in some ways. You're not really used to having these. I mean, you could tell you could tell that 1917 was in play here. You know, just the way the setting was shot and some of these right. overhead shots and establishment and getting you to to feel like you were there. I mean, it was gorgeous stuff. He works so well with fire, right? My God, yeah, beacons yeah. and fire from Blade Runner to this. Yeah to uh 1917 tower of babel thing in 1917 yeah absolutely holy cow anyway let's get back to craig here for a minute talk about the historical significance of his performance michael i think a lot of bond historians i think a lot of james bond critics a lot of the podcasts i've listened to a lot of the documentaries i've watched about the bond films they talk about like a sweet spot for a bond actor like in his second or his third movie where they really come to grips with the character where they really round into shape feel comfortable do you get the sense that this bond kind of really found his groove that daniel craig in skyfall was was some of daniel craig's best work as bond yeah but it's also kind of a cheat because he's not really playing a bond we've seen before So it's not like he's breaking the mold of the character. It's just that it's a different mold altogether. Because this is basically an origin story. This is pretty much a character reset. Like, this was the film that proved definitively, at least in terms of the cinematic universe, 007 isn't a code name. James Bond isn't just a code name. Like, it's an actual person with a history. So uh, that was kind of a break from form. We never really had that sort of deep dive into who the man of James Bond was. So, yeah, I think this was the best, but this is also because, again, I think this is the best movie that a Bond has been in. I think Mendy's leaned into a lot of Bond's worst characteristics, and I think this is, like, the culmination of that anti-hero age where Mm. Batman and the Dark Knight movies are coming out and making billions, and now Bond is making billions, leaning into that Walter White, Tony Soprano anti-hero, and they just can't get it, and we can't get enough of it on the big screen. This is like a stoic Bond, but this is also an alcoholic Bond, a sex addict Bond. Oh, it's the most flawed. It's the most flawed Bond we've seen. He's popping pills. I mean, he is as ruthless with his license to kill as we have ever seen, but (laughs) somehow this is Craig's best performance, according to everybody at the same time. So I, I don't I don't think they followed the threads from you know Quantum of Solace and that we don't have quantum here and we just had a movie with a lot of hugs. This is not kind of that <laughs> same thing. This is very very different. This is Bond, cold ass Bond. I mean this yeah. is cold. Yeah, I mean he doesn't like people prying into his. Yeah, I, this is absolutely what he is, and he has to be more standoffish and more of a prick. But at the same time, I mean Bond. Look, this isn't giving anything away. Bond fails in this movie. Like, right from the jump, he's a failure. Very, very different tone right from the get-go than you get in every other Bond movie. Yeah, it, well, I would say Casino Royale has some failures, too. That's why I kind of like this Bond series the most, because it shows him to be so flawed. Like, mm. they take a lot of the hallmarks and they say, well, if we really applied these things to a realistic scenario or to a you know an updated genre in terms of spy films, in terms of action films, because the audiences are smarter nowadays, no offense, to all of the old fogies out there listening, we still love you, but you're a smarter moviegoer now than you were then, and, or when you were a kid and you loved the Sean Connery Bonds. So we just don't we don't take the same levels 
of you know explained shit away that we used to so this bond has to be more sophisticated and therefore he's kind of got to have a harder edge they they ramp up the antagonism in terms of how evil that could be with uh this character and with uh Laship from the beginning of the series the last one we had political villains that was again not something we've seen to that extent where they're making the the statements on global warming all that stuff you know the cia and americans foreign policy i mean we got a lot of that in the last movie so mike i think this is a much more mature bond this is a much more topical bond and it's more it's as intense as ever as ever and to get back to something you said about the anti-hero when this came out in 2012 we were getting on the verge of needing like that trope needed to evolve in and of itself because the Dark Knight was wrapping up in 2012. The Nolan tr- trilogy was wrapping up. Right. Breaking Bad was entering its final stretch by the time 2012. Tony Soprano had already been off the airwaves and don't stop believing himself to blackness years prior. <laughs> like the, the We had done almost as much as we could with the regular thought of an antihero. Now the antihero needed to evolve and go somewhere else. We needed to have him. Maybe you don't want to just always root for the antihero. Maybe the antihero is just a scumbag, you know, who maybe you should hate. So there was a lot of things going in favor for Mendes to kind of take chances with that I think they pulled off. Mm-hmm. because of the time that this happened to be in. I mean, they, they were a little ahead of their time here and kind of learning, uh, leaning into the curve of where society was going with the anti-heroes in pop culture as he- as heroes. Yeah, that's a great place to kind of transition to spoilers, Mike, because it's the question of maybe the anti-heroes of our past that we celebrate, maybe they're just villains? Right, maybe they're just jerks. <laughs> <laughs> spoilers ahead! Just look at you. Barely held together by your pills and your drink. Don't forget my pathetic love of country. <laughs> You're still clinging to your faith in that old woman. When all she does is lie to you. She never lied to me. No? No. What did you score on your marksmanship evaluation? 70. <laughs> 40. Did she tell you the psychologist cleared you for duty? Yes. No. No. This is a spoiler warning. This is the spoiler section of the eighth entry into the Mike, Mike, and Oscar James Bond character study. We are covering Daniel Craig in Skyfall. If you do not want to hear the spoilers about Skyfall, uh, this is a good place for you to hit pause. Go watch the movie. We'll be here waiting for you when you come back to hit play. If you've seen the movie already or just curious to hear our thoughts, this is where you want to be. We have a bunch of kooky, crazy, pun-filled Bond-named sections that we're going to talk about all things Skyfall and its plot for. We'll start with the spy who's not me, which are the fantasy elements of Bond, and why we personally, as Mike won and also Mike want to, but could never be James Bond. And Mike, look, I'm going to say this right off the top here. Right. I think at this point, (laughs) if I, if Mike won were either a 007 or this specific Daniel Craig Bond, Mm -hmm. I think I'd be done. I like We can't go through life with every mission... Mm -hmm. Starting off with these impossibly high-stakes chase scenes that rely on nothing but good timing and karma and tons of luck. And as we open here, we have Bond and Eve, who's Naomi Harris's character, in pursuit of some bad guy for some list. (laughs) 
that M wants. How many times are we doing? How many times am I putting my life on the line for some nondescript MacGuffin, which has zero direct impact on the well-being of my person, just because some old kook lady who clearly has lost a step and couldn't give a shit about my personal well-being says, I'm done. I'm, I'm double-O dunzo with this. So you came in hot with this spoiler section. <laughs> Uh, and you should be 006.9. I realized that in the, during your rant, but I do think I nice. do think you've let your feeling you've let your feelings be known for this bond. My goodness, we know what team you're on in this one. My God, you're they, you're don't care. they clearly don't. M says, "Hey, kill James Bond real quick for me." Yeah, yeah, she did. She did. She kind of assassinated her character. And look, they followed through on it, though, Mike. By the end of this movie, M is Gonzo. She's double O Dunzo herself. Good. Uh, in one of your best writing jobs yet in your copy. But look, I, I, you've got to hand it to the filmmakers here with that opening chase sequence. I mean, it was at awesome. Least, at least if you're going to get a lot of the same old silly tropes, they take this not only to 11, but like 21. Yeah. My God, that motorcycle chasing on the rooftops of Istanbul headed into the Grand Bazaar. I've never seen anything like that other than Taken, but they weren't on motorcycles, right? Right. I was watching videos, and apparently it's the same exact <laughs> setting. I don't know who did it first, Taken or this movie. Anyway, you've never seen anything like it in Fast and Furious. You've never seen anything like it in Mission Impossible. I mean, that is really over the top. Then you have that on, on top of the train fight sequence where i said it was just there were hundreds of feet in the air they're really doing that uh not not to mention they're really taking bulldozers and they're hitting vw bugs off the caboose and then and it gave me open. such a start too because i was like my god the license to bill section for this episode is going to be endless we're starting with mm. a bulldozer trailering a billion volkswagens for some reason and we're using that to tear apart a moving train We've had some big budgets for the insurance companies yes. on this show before, but that segment is going to be massive this time. But, uh, yeah, I just I can't believe, like, somebody had the audacity to dream up a scenario like this. Like, if your nephew, Mike, uh, who I've met, who yes. loves to play with toys, he loves to play pretend, mm -hmm. a few times, you know, I, I've been able to interact with him and play with him, and he's he's just an all-around fun-loving kid who thinks he's a ninja, yes. who thinks he could teleport. I mean, la that was the last time I think I He I has not grown playing. out of it. Good. Good for him. I never, never grow out of it. But, like, I would have to, like, bite my lip if I saw him playing, or I'm sure you would do the same. If you saw him playing out this scenario with toys... <laughs> Like you would just, you would want to take the kid aside and be like, "Listen, you're getting too old for this shit. Yeah. You have to, you know, you have to get, a, you have to get real at some point." Do you like, want to? Do you want to write or, or color or something? <laughs> I can't have you literally tearing apart your toys like this. Exactly. But this movie had the audacity to do it all with practical effects. That's the most stunning part is how amazing it looks because it is all, which is shocking. And you're going to bring this up too. There's a, a like, there's throwaway scenes that use CGI and it just looks so bad because the bigger stuff and the stuff that should be usually CGI because nobody sure. should have the budget to do these with real bulldozers and trains and stuff looks so good because they did do it. it that dichotomy is a little off-putting and you're going to talk about that and I agree with it, but let's, let's stay on audacity for a second, Mike, <laughs> because again, if I'm bond <laughs> and I decide 
to go along with this M has me killed at the beginning and I'm living out my vacation because everybody presumes I'm dead, but I see the news story and I have to come back to check on everyone in MI6. If I do that out of the goodness of my heart and responsibility of duty, mm-hmm. you're going to make me be reinitiated and have to pass through training again? Do you know how many times I've saved the world single-handedly? I was just on vacation in paradise betting a model, and you think I'm just some out-of-shape schlub now? How dare you? It was a playground (laughs) for his vices. Just a playground. He's going to leave that playground where he can have drinking games with CGI scorpions. <laughs> that should so not, bad. Uh, that looked exactly what we were talking yes. about. It should not be there. And he's not even doing anything that would stop that scorpion from stinging him. <laughs> he's just getting lucky that he's not getting scu- you know, stung there. Yes. But, I mean, this is raging alcoholic James Bond, like literally drinking. Like he's got <laughs> almost got an immunity to alcohol because he's just drinking from sundown to sun up. I mean, he wakes up at the bar and it's another die, you know, and, and reaches pill. over the bar to grab the bottle because the bartender's not acting fast enough for him. He just finished a drinking contest with a scorpion, and then the next morning he is reaching for another bottle. Like this man is an, an addict, <laughs> and that's and that's the seriousness of what I'm taking the piss out of and joking about. Right. Like they do go right into giving this Bond dimensions and showing his failures not only physically as he will do later on in the plot as well, but mentally and spiritually. This is a broken dude. This is a guy that's kind of given in because he was supposed to have this super soldier mentality that knows no other way and is just basically a pawn for the higher-ups in the English government to use at their disposal when things go haywire. And he's kind of realized that. Now he takes his shirt off and he he whimpers. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. Uh, but uh, look, I mean, to get into the, some more of the fantasy elements, like I mentioned earlier, I mean, that Dragon Casino in Shanghai might be the most beautiful set ever constructed, Mike. They literally put hundreds of lanterns into the water. Now, they filmed that outside of Great Britain, so they didn't film that in China. But they, oh, really? they did wow. build that set. They did put all those lanterns in the water in Great Britain. Uh, that ride up for Bond from Deacons and Mendy's. And then once he gets into that casino, you have to take a walk around. And Mendy's and, and Deacons are just too happy to show us the layout of the whole place because it's gorgeous. It's moonlit. It's it's you know lantern lit. You have Bond and many Money Penny taking those walks around, communicating through their earpiece, trading barbs until they go to the you know the gorgeous uh, you know cashier and then to the bar and oh my god, it was. I've never seen a place I've wanted to be more in debt and lose my legs at than that. I mean, it looked <laughs> no, it looked stunning. And I was it episode eight or episode nine where they in Star Wars where they go to the casino planet. Uh, well, episode eight. My yeah. point is, this puts that casino to shame. It, it looked right. I mean, I thought Black Panther looked decently as good. I mean, this one kind of kind of looks better. And again, I was just when I saw this casino there, I was like, wow, it's crazy the parallels that this has with the MCU at all times. Obviously, this came out prior to Black Panther. There's a big casino fight scene in Black Panther as well. But yeah, this. I mean, some of the settings here, not just that casino, but that tall skyscraper hyper techno building that bond breaks into when he rides awesome. the elevator up at first. like it just all was so amazing looking it was outstanding i totally agree and then how do you top all that well you go to the scottish fog yeah where you go to skyfall which get the more name rustic is, and rural baby 
the name is literally about the clouds descending upon the moors, the Scottish Highlands there. And I just love the fog. I love the gate. I loved how the, you know, all the goofy YouTube videos out there, the real trailer, honest trailers, etc. Talk about the long, too long establishing <laughs> shots. But if you got settings like this, man, I want the establishing yeah. shot. I want the, the master shot. Yep. I want Bond taking several breaths. And I want those awkward cutouts for your, your silly trailers or your fake trailers on YouTube because it's that good looking. I mean, it, it's look, you're going to get your big action piece where a chopper goes one-on-one with James Bond. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. That's coming. Don't worry. Let's have these moments. I didn't think the, I, I thought it was all beautiful. I'm like you just let me live in that for a while because I live in Connecticut, you know? <laughs> Anyway, I think I got to, you know, follow the rubric of this uh, segment for at least one paragraph here, Mike, because I think that I could never survive that henchman at the end. And usually I feel pretty good about beating up the henchman because I'm like, these henchmen aren't aren't smart and the henchmen early in the sequence at skyfall they're not smart like you know you there's a first wave of 10 guys that basically go in there and they get home alone and it's right. hilarious <laughs> right. and it's great and i love it and it's the coolest you know just id ego super ego trifecta with dame judy dench and albert finney and bond himself you know representation of kevin McAllister that i've ever seen <laughs> good setup just, Perfect. But bottom line is, you know, you you got all these henchmen and they're losing just badly. But then you have that one henchman on the ice who comes up behind Bond, who snuck up behind behind Bond on the ice. You have Silva with the second to last confrontation between Bond and Silva. Bond, of course, gets the drop on this henchman. But this is the greatest, most loyal cult follower henchman ever, Michael, because... You know, they're going down into the water after Bond kind of sweeps the leg and makes the machine gun fire out in a spray, circular spray, and they go underneath the ice into the water. This henchman is trying to choke out Bond. Yeah, he was going for it. But he's, he's like, I'm taking you with him. But luckily... Bond is able to get the step over toe hold face lock, <laughs> aka the STF. I don't know where. I wow! Read that. He gets it on the greatest henchman ever, and that, but that doesn't end the scene. That doesn't end the scene. Like maybe you would have tried it. You're like, all right, I'm going out. I'll try my favorite guy's move. Exactly. John Cena. Yep. Love you, baby. I'll see you in a few. It's you He's and me, Johnny. Dead. He's not dead yet. I'll see you when you're finished with oh. your wrestling career. Anyway, but before. They both drown. Bond chokes this guy out with the STF, and then he has the wherewithal to take a flare off of this carcass, shoot it up at the ice because he can't find the hole that he came down in, which is always a problem. We always see this in movies. It's always annoying. It's always, you know, anxiety driving. Mm -hmm. Instead of having that scene, which I thought we were going to get there, you have Bond doing this brilliant, like Hannibal Lecter level smart thing to shoot the flare at the at the surface, find where the hole is, and then of course he'll get the drop on Silva at the end. My God, Mike, we could never be James Bond. I could just imagine myself. Like, first of all, the panic and anxiety would grip me, and I would lose all breath, and I would drown immediately. So it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, it, it'd be nothing. But like, having the wherewithal to think of doing all that while you're underwater and not being able to breathe, having just come <laughs> off this exasperated experience of keeping this henchman at bay who seems to have super strength in his own, I'd probably just give up anyway. It's not worth, you know. Like, he would, has life he, been that good for me that I need to come back from this? The henchman <laughs> would realize you are floating to the bottom like a rock. <laughs> 
<laughs> and he would use your body to propel himself forward towards the hole that he could still see in the surface because you gave up so fast, and then he would get home free. Why won't you die? <laughs> he would get to kill Albert Finney, Kincaid, while Silva killed M. Right, exactly. That, 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 the bottom line, that henchman is coming back, not you or I. That's right. That's absolutely right, Mike. But listen, we got to get into the next segment. Live and let dad joke. This is all about the best quotes and one-liners from Bond, etc. here. So we did have a couple old school James Bond one-liney type quips. Upon seeing Eve at the new MI6 headquarters for the first time after she shot him in the opening, Eve is saying, I've been reassigned, temporary suspension from field work, something about killing 007. And Bond's retort is, well, you gave it your best shot. This man has a bullet from this woman in his chest still currently. And is just like, ma, 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 ma. Yeah, he's joking about what's in his chest. But then again, I think it was the the shrapnel from the guy shooting at him from the, uh, you know, when he was in the dozer on the train. This is so hard to explain to people because it's just nonsense. (laughs) Anyway, because that's how they track down. He gives it to, like, uh, Kinnear. Right. He gives it to Turner or whatever. I I always just remember it was Rory Kinnear. I remember (laughs) I can't remember his character's name. I, I At the end of the movie, they said it was like, but I forgot it. It's like terrain or something. Anyway, you're right. That's that's, that's pretty terrible. Uh, my <laughs> worst dad joke of the movie comes when Bond is walking into the shower with Severine. We're going to have more to say about this scene mm-hmm. in Shanghai, but Bond goes, I like you better without your Beretta. Because, of course, in the last scene, she, you know, she had a Beretta to her leg at the casino, mm-hmm. and they kind of made a big deal about it. Right before they kiss, she goes, of course... I feel naked without it. And if you are turned on right now, shame on you. Just shame on you. Even though I gave you my best sexy voice, shame on you out there. That was your best sexy. Interesting. All right. <laughs> I, I'll be honest, Mike. I, like, I was expecting worse when it comes from dad jokes and stuff, but I thought we had a lot of one-liners that were kind of badass more than hokey and dad yes. jokey. We did. We had a bunch, and we had an entire game that was like the centerpiece of every trailer for Skyfall. This word association test between the psychologist and Bond where he's giving him a word, and Bond's got to respond. He's like, murder, and Bond's like, employment. Mm. I mean, that's badass. And then, of course, it ends with Skyfall, and Bond's like, done, and he walks away. I mean, that was awesome. So cool, and it sets the stage for everything that's to come. It's so foreboding. How about when Bond, he returns to MI6 after Silver blows it up, and M asks him, where the hell? have you been bonds come back enjoying death and it's serious too because he doesn't want to be back here i would have a different delivery there i'd be like enjoying death (laughs) (laughs) i would be like i would just get in her face about it but look i mean this script it's equal opportunity for cool ass lines for action movie lines and I was just watching Rick and Morty. My my brother basically been bugging me for years. Start watching Rick and, Mo- Rick and Morty. And I finally listened to him. And I was watching one episode where there's just the dad just became like an action movie line. <laughs> just the whole rest of the episode. He was just get, delivering those lines. It was great. And that's all of the characters in this movie. So yeah. these are true action movie uh, dialoguers or actors. I could just call them characters. I yeah, you can do say. That. yeah, you can. Anyway. Bond breaks Eve's balls about knocking off the side mirror in that opening car chase. And he goes, guess you weren't using that. And then she purposely knocks off the other one, which, you know, is tactful precision driving mm-hmm. to do that, right? Amidst the car chase. And she goes, I wasn't using that one either. either. Proving that Bond, of course, is an asshole who criticizes women drivers and you better <laughs> not do that. 
And we're going to talk about the this script's entire treatment of women, as we always do with every Bond uh, character study we do coming up. But I have uh, maybe some surprising things to say, I think. But uh, yeah, to, to your point, even Dame Judi Dench gets a couple. Uh, one of my favorites comes when M essentially... She gets fired by Mallory, uh, who is uh, Ray Fine's character, and Mallory says that she, M, should step down with dignity. M's response is, "Ah, to hell with dignity! I'll leave when the job's done." Totally badass. Yeah, uh, t- for, absolutely. For Dame Judi Dench, there, I loved it. Uh, and again, we have more characters. We have Q. He has a line uh, to tell off Bond in their meeting scene. I love that. Like, Quote, I can do more damage in my pajamas before my morning tea than you can do in a year in the field. And I just, I thought that was brilliant. And Bond's like, so why do you need me at all? And then Q responds, like, every now and then a trigger needs to be pulled. So he's, like, trying to win Bond over and, like, you know, just at least giving him an opening. And I I just think it's fun because they do a -a tete-a-tete there. But that scene comes full circle and we'll talk about it more in the Q segment. Finally... Kincaid, Mike, he gets maybe the one of the lines of the movie. Welcome to Scotland after he shoots a guy. <laughs> it was great at the end. Yeah, it was very good. And obviously, I mean, we've talked previously about how that was supposed to be Sean Connery, but Albert Finney does just an a- as admirable a job in filling in that role. Uh, we haven't even talked about Sylvie yet, the Javier Bardem character, the big bad. His mm-hmm. story about rats is pretty scary. It's kind of perfect. It has several callbacks between he and Bond later on in the movie as well. Yeah, not to mention his giant rat false teeth in his mouth (laughs) that fit perfectly. There's that, too, uh, because there's that chilling story he tells about the cyanide capsule accident and where he describes his survival as life clung to me like a disease. Not to mention the luscious blonde hair. Yeah. There's some off-puttingly good hair from Mr. Bardem as this Bond villain, uh, especially after the bowl haircut in No Country for Old Men. Yeah, I think that was definitely in mind. Yeah, he insisted on dyeing his real hair blonde, and it, he's got great hair. I'm very jealous. <laughs> we can move on to the Dr. Please, Oh God, No segment. This is where we highlight Bond's issues with women. We've been here hammering Bond pretty much throughout the entirety of this these first seven episodes of this character study with the way the script and the writers and the Bond character treats the women and what the women characters have to work with within the script. Is this the strongest start to female characters any Bond movie has had yet? Well, yes and no. I, I think the Adele song is an all-time. Sure. I think, I think Eve Moneypenny is kind of proven to be terrible in the field. Sure. So, however, this film is built around the relationship between Dame Judi Dench's M and James Bond. And that is a very important change, I think, for all of these movies, I hope. But then again, I kind of have a twist on that by the end. So, Well, and I was just thinking, as far as importance to the script, like... Had it not been for Eve doing what she does in shooting Bond and taking the director from M, had it not been for M losing this list and fighting yeah. like hell to maintain her relevance and her position within MI6 until the list is recovered because she, you know, has this sense of duty to herself and to her country to want to do it. Like, the women are really the driving force behind this entire movie, I think. Correct. They have perhaps the most agency that they've right. ever had in a Bond movie since Casino Royale, I would say. You know, maybe... Quantum of Solace, but that's behind the scenes. This is on screen. They have all the agency. They're making all the changes, and Bond is having to react to what they do. Now, that's a double-edged sword, however, because this movie is the Empire Strikes Back of the Bond franchise. Basically, 
it's not just Bond getting his ass kicked from start to finish in this film. It is M, it's right. Eve, it's MI6. I mean, they are losing, and they are losing bad to Silver yes. Mike. And the implications and optics of having a female-led cast or having all that female agency, you know, the optics of them losing as much as Bond's losing, you know, that's tough to reconcile, but I'm glad they have the agency on the other hand. So you're not wrong, but I don't know if you're right. Still, you have M kind of dealing with the monsters she's created. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're going to be an equitable screenplay and an equ- equitable storytelling you know, apparatus, then you got to give rounded characterness to all characters, male, female, whatever. So you right. got to give them flaws and failures. That was going to be my response is that, yes, the optics may not look so great on first blush, but at least we have... I mean, how long have we had Judy Dench in our lives in this role? And she's right. getting an actual backstory. She's getting layers. She's getting dimensions here. I mean, she has to fail. She's a human being, too. You know, like she's not just the director in all of this that can never do any wrong and never has to answer for her crimes and only spends her time covering up for the ills of 007. Like she's actual her own human being here, which is kind of cool to see. Eve, you can argue the same thing. She kind of gets more layers in of, of herself, the relationship with Bond. OK, yes, there's that odd sexual money penny double. 07 tension, but she's not the money penny that's just throwing herself on her desk for James to have anymore. I mean, she literally shoots the guy in the fucking chest this movie, you know? You give these characters license to fail because they're more rounded human beings, like you said. I mean, how many Oscar-grabby films have we criticized over the years because it was a white male director with good intentions, right. and we've we've recognized those as well. Good intents is trying trying to make a movie about someone that's not a white man, and therefore he just doesn't have the courage to show a rounded character in the lead role, and he basically gives them a puff piece, and he doesn't right. really, you know, he doesn't have any teeth to the screenplay, and then it's a flat character, and it doesn't work. This is not that. And there are warts that pop up with their yeah, with this... the handling of women, absolutely. I mean... We do have the most unnecessary sensual shave scene of all time, and Bond is quickly in bed with the Severine character for pretty much no reason whatsoever. That's a failure that keeps popping up and still popped up in Skyfall. The Severine character, just in general, I thought Mm -hmm. was fairly abhorrent. It's still a Bond movie, and you're still going to have gratuitous sex, but... You know, is the sex gratuitous if he's a sex addict, and we've shown him... He's just a full-blown addict. I mean, we know that right. now. We know he can't stop. So at the same time, I, I wonder how you gauge the two, but you're right. We 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 do spend 15 movies with Bond and Money Penny. They're addicted to flirting. They keep flirting here. It's a superfluous scene, but it's kind of sexy, though, isn't it? I mean, am I... Well, I, look, I, I think that the, the allure of it is because Money Penny isn't just a fucking side character that has no purpose. Like right. the allure, of, the, the reason it's sexy is because she's a capable, badass fucking agent in this movie. She's trying to pump him up and she's also there to brief him. Yeah. And she has a purpose and he actually recognizes her. He's like, aren't you too good for this job? Right. But then she's like, hey, I'm willing to do this for the team and, you know, let's have this major flirtation and he's submissive in a way to her too like she's the dominant one in that relationship she's the one given the directive she's the one that oh, hey my bad sorry i shot you but that's part of life and he's like yep sure is that's part, that's what the job calls for you know you gave it your best shot ha 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 please don't do it again you know like she's he's yeah i think lose ceding control of that dynamic to her yeah. I, at least that's how it read to me his intentions might not be pure i agree with I that will say. i agree with that's, that <laughs> i agree with that 
I think, you know, he has some ulterior motives there. I don't think they had sex at the end of the day. I don't either. So maybe they do, and maybe we're going to get a scene in No Time to Die where, you know, it refers back to that night together. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, the the positive way to read that scene is, is James Bond is trying to give her confidence. And he's saying, all right, here, I'll put, of course I'll put my life in your hands because that's an overt way for me to say that I'm doing this on this mission with you involved. So mm-hmm. we're a team, and we're going to have this scene together next where we're, we're going to have to be a team together. And, of course, she saves his life. You know, in the Shanghai casino scene, right? So, right, it works. I mean, that, that you think about all the time we've dealt with a money penny character, and where she hasn't gone, stepped out from behind the freaking desk in HQ over exactly. the majority of these episodes. So it's it's to me, again, it's it's like everything else. Yeah, it's refreshing. It's cool. We've gotten this far. What the fuck took so long? Why isn't it farther? I mean, that's how we. That's how we pretty much sum up every uh, thing having to do with gender equality in Hollywood. Let's get back, if we could, to the yeah. Severine character. The introduction and the the introduction of the, her character and her role as the gatekeeper to Silva made it was just kind of like an all a plot device for me. I did not like it at all. It's pretty abhorrent, like you said. That's the word for it. Because there is a well, let's put it this way: there's a glamorous reveal of her character as like this art dealer in uh, across the way in Shanghai at that. Uh, I mean, Mike, number one. Bond allows both security guards to die. Bond is scum. He is scum. (laughs) He allows both security guards to die. Then he allows this assassin to get off his shot before he jumps him up there. So whoever that guy... So three men dead. Three innocent lives. I actually... The way that was shot, I thought that was Bond taking the shot at first. No. Because it just seems... Bond doesn't give... Right. And he doesn't he care. Right. He does not care. And he locks eyes with the hot chick in the room away. Right. Exactly. And he's like, all right, I guess I got to go find out who this hot chick is. And he does. So we meet Severine in that scene, and she's some kind of broker for this assassination, I guess, at the end of the day. Anyway, we meet her there, and then we see her just lit up at the casino. My God, that, uh, you know, that dress with the backless or the uh, see through back. My goodness gorgeous she sits there with him they trade all of these barbs and then bond does something like he did in casino royale and he's like using his powers of perception to say you have bodyguards because you're a prisoner essentially you're a captive and you the tattoo on your wrist stands for the sex trade which means you were in the sex trade at a very young age and she admits 12 years old how is that a setup for a seduction scene? Is what oh I want to know. It's gross. Like, it's, that's it's, the grossest actually, thing. It's about actually this movie. like objectionably horrible if you're preying on that. It's not sexy at all. No, it's gross. It's a it's borderline a crime. Is what it is. It's like they wrote one scene before the other. It's like they wrote the scene yeah. that came after before the other. They shot the scene that came after before the other, and then they tried to give her more gravitas. Right. And they tried to give that relationship more gravitas, but then they didn't think about how disgusting it was that Bond would seduce her in the next scene. It makes no sense. Right. I, I didn't. And then, I mean, you go from that to, okay, I guess if you're going to take that on face value, now she's at least into James. So it makes sense that she would bring him. But it's such a cookie cutter setup for Silva. You know, he'll kill you. He's very dangerous. There's nothing given. There's no exposition for any of the, for her, for the Silva character, other than we know what he's done already, but there's no, it's just kind of like, we need to get James Bond in the same room as Javier Bardem. So let's uh, storyboard two quick scenes and we'll introduce this character to do it. 
and her death is insult to injury, right? Because she is killed in that crazy suspenseful mm-hmm. game of death where Bond is shown to be all the weaker and not up to his usual abilities where he cannot shoot the glass of scotch off her head. Right. Of course, Silva immediately shoots her dead after right. that. And he goes to Bond. He goes, what do you think of that? And Bond just the coldest grossest line of perhaps the series he goes it's a waste of good scotch before he fights himself free for really no reason other than get himself free because we still have the worst timed rescue brigade ever you know to to <laughs> ride in after all the shit went down and the do you think they died. were just waiting for him to give a cool line to save face because, yeah. like, they could have been there moments earlier, but then he wouldn't have had his one-off delivery, and they need to protect the James Bond image within the halls of MI6. For once, I want the Rescue Brigade <laughs> to have better timing in a movie, please, if you're listening out there. But, look, to bring this full circle, we do have a matured relationship between Bond and M, Dame Judi Dench, where she is Bond's authority figure. She's also his protector. She's this surrogate maternal figure. And both hero and villain are reckoning with their relationships with this woman. I mean, she stands up to criticism throughout the film. She pays the ultimate price in the finale. So she has a true hero's ending, all right, that puts an end to this monster that her organization created. I mean, it's a team effort. She does die in the process, but Bond does achieve, you know, the ultimate victory of getting this evil off the board correct yeah i mean i mean it's it's pretty blatant by the time everyone starts referring to her as m and and Mm -hmm. silver calling her mother that what's going on here and what these two what the subtext is between these two entities but i guess i guess that's as good a segue as any to go into always say never again which are our moral issues with the films and some more of the worst scenes and themes i'm gonna be honest mike like other than the severine stuff uh, other than some of the lame script stuff that we've already discussed, mm-hmm. I didn't have that much against what I saw, and that's kind of also why I think it's one of the better Bond movies. You actually were able to, to hone in on a couple controversies that came out the same time this hit theaters that I never even knew about. Yeah, I don't know if this is a humble brag or just admitting how idi- uh, how, how idiotic we are. Or insensitive we are. Mm. I don't know which because when I saw Silva acting flirtatious towards Bond, I didn't think any of it. I didn't either. I'll be honest. If he's bisexual, I mean, I know he mentions that he's a lover of Severine's, you know, in the next scene. Mm -hmm. But if he's bisexual, so be. I like. I I hope that's like me being, you know, well intentioned. Like, all right, whatever. It is what it is. But there's a lot of responses to this out there, and they get very nuanced, and they also get very angry. You know, so there's really two sides to this. And actually, when I looked at this segment, I was like, "This is not, you know, this is a thin segment. We better look something up." When I found these things, I was like, "Oh yeah, now I remember." And basically, there was a bit of a controversy back when this movie came out about Bond being bisexual, and. There were interviews of the screenwriter, of the actors, uh, several times by the press. And John Logan, who is an openly gay screenwriter, said something or other that, like, this is a card that they wanted to play and that they wanted to play with and that he specifically wanted to write into the story. And Mendez thought it was appropriate for that moment. It's a cat and mouse game. What are the implications of that? I guess we're going to get into them. But do you, do you have any initial thoughts on uh, on the setup there, Mike. Yeah, my initial thought is it'd, it'd be fucking awesome if James Bond was overtly LGBTQ. 
So you get a lot of that responses on the internet. You get out.com basically rejoicing in the fact that one of the manliest right. men exactly of for the men yeah. history, male history could be openly gay or could be, you know, bisexual there and and that that's ultimately kind of a good thing, right? I mean, or it'd at be least a great it's a progressive thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, it'd be a, I think it yeah, oh, obviously a progressive thing, but I think it'd be a great thing. I mean, there's not nearly enough representation. Certainly, I mean, we've come eons from 2012 when this movie came out, but it, I mean, we're still not nearly far enough and in 2012 there was they, they nothing. Uh, we we felt like the prehistoric ages anytime before like 2017 right now if you look back right. in history. And you can read all the interviews out there of the cast and crew, and basically the cast and crew's like, we don't care which way they go at all. I mean, it's 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 really cool to to play down this road and to let all the implications fly because we think it's important for the story and it's an open interpretation from anybody who watches this movie and it's stories on NBC News and and everywhere. And it would have fit this storyline too. I mean, these are two men that are basically cut from the same cloth they're not literal brothers but where's the line between being you know i mean if you're not a brother you could be a lover if you're that close to each other anyway if you have that much in common i mean i think it would have if they played it more up and again i'm like you when i watched it i didn't get any kind of sexual innuendo from it i just thought this was a bad guy being a bad guy and james bond being this cool suave james bond so i i kind of wish there was more because it would have added another dimension to the bond character for us to discuss and talk about it would have been more fun for the plot and the subtext i think now i i kind of agree with you and whether they're pretending or not pretending i don't know if that matters but the facts of this scene have been interpreted negatively by people on the internet in 2012 and in a a, look and i researched this for about 30 minutes i went down a bit of a rabbit hole with it because i was curious Mm -hmm. and you find message boards pretty quick where like the data lounge where they're calling the scene out and out homophobic and can you really blame them in a franchise where you had mr wint and mr kid and you had openly homophobic you know rhetoric and those scenes that were played for laughs that were just downright cruel at the end of the day in diamonds are forever mike so they're saying because of the history because of the way this franchise has handled homosexual characters previously referencing them at all here would just by its association be a negative thing no they're saying that the scene is homophobic it's not just associative that the villain of the film might be doing that it's it's more nuanced than that because they're looking at You know, the references to bisexuality here are the filmmakers just trying to make the audience uncomfortable. And then that's a double-edged sword because if if they're trying to use this flirtation to make the audience uncomfortable, what is that? Now, when you have an openly gay screenwriter who kind of harkens to the John uh, Le Carre novels, the the well-known spy novels and Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, etc. From that to the real-life history of a lot of spies in the United States and the UK during the Cold War, from J. Edgar Hoover on down, you know, coming out after the fact or coming out later in, in memoirs or whatever, heterosexuality was not the norm amongst spies or amongst amongst people involved in tradecraft during those times. And is this a movie calling out to that? And can you have a spy movie and not call out to that? However, again, it's nuanced. Is it homophobic to have the villain make the audience uncomfortable or is it trying to jar the audience's biases out? 
And yeah. is that a good thing? I and mean, then there's a lot going on here. I mean, you're, you you kind of have to do the deep dive here, too, because then it's, well, what exactly is make, is supposed to be the genesis of the uncomfortability in the scene? Is it just the a man being that close to another man and, and speaking in whispered tones? and Or is it actually that we know that this guy has just, you know, made it his life's mission to assault Dame Judi Dench, who's this beloved iconic figure, not only on screen, but also in our lives of pop culture? Like, there's, there's tons of nuance I think you have to go through before you I, I think it's unfair to just generally say it's the homophobia and the being man being close to another man is what's supposed to be the uncomfortability there but i'm not going to argue anyone who feels that way people are right. entitled to feel how they feel so yeah i mean it's a it's a it's certainly like everything is with this type of thing it's just a tricky thing to get out of i'm sure knowing sam mendes and knowing the writers attached they I, i'm sure they meant they intended well right i mean we don't you think there's anything nefarious so. here you hope so, and you hope that it's what they kind of said, or it's what I, I forget. I should have uh, cited this, but somebody said when I was reading about this, I read a couple articles. Somebody said they were trying to draw prejudice out of the shadows and biases out of the shadows in an audience, and that that is kind of a progressive way to at least interpret this. But and you know, the, my 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 question would be if that was your if that was actually your intent, you should have turned it up more you should have turned the sexual attraction between those two characters those two male characters up more because i think yeah. that would have drawn out more obvious ire from people and then you can't say what the fuck is your problem why why is this a problem for you why who cares uh, essentially right i mean yeah it's 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 fascinating it was not a deep dive i expected from this movie but it's funny how you know you remember things 10 years ago yeah i'm, I'm just dawn on you amazed that one escaped me i do not remember anything about that at the time or now Anyway, we do have kind of another significant, you know, issue to talk about here because there's kind of a serious ethical concern about Bond villains that finally rears its its head uh, in this particular movie because in the last movie, Mark Forster kind of took a stand where he did not want the Quantum of Solace villain, Dominic Green, to have a physical disfigurement. And we've had a lot of Bond villains have a phys physical disfigurement. We've had many that have not, uh, from Drax to uh, Goldfinger, etc. So here we are where Bond, a Bond villain you know, has to be evil or you have to have his inner turmoil signified with a physical man manifestation. And when you think about that, it's kind of simple, lazy writing for audiences, and it really puts a stigma out there. Sure. This is not just a Bond problem. This is a Hollywood problem, yeah. of course, that we kind of overlook and, we're, and talk about being insensitive. We are totally insensitive as mass audiences for a full century. And now we got Rami Malek. What does he have? I know he's wearing a mask, but he's got some skin issue. Like, what? what is... What's the correct ethical moral stance right. on this? It's it may not be a situation where all right a bad guy has a physical uh, situation where he has something different about his face. Is that necessarily a bad thing on uh, in general, or is it bad because it's been done to death in cinema every single movie? It's got to hurt people out there. It's got to hurt their feelings who do have you know a physical abnormality on their face or whatever that's obvious they, they got to feel like shit when they see every movie villain with with the same thing right this one seems more black and white to me it's a product yeah of hollywood lineage essentially like this has kind of been the default but and maybe it wasn't intended to represent anything but if you do something a thousand times in a row like hollywood has with this type of thing well then yeah you're probably going to cause a, an issue with it and i think that one is is pretty easy to see and yeah i think there is 
there's a rightful gripe. I will say I would be curious. I don't know if they have done this. I haven't researched it and that's on me and maybe I will after this, but like, I'd like to know if the American disability association has come out or any kind of uh, a, a government entity like that representing differently abled people has come out or any differently abled groups have yeah. passed comment on this. And again, I don't know, but I'd just like to know the point of view of the people this is actually supposed to represent. And, and I'd just like to hear from them. Uh, you be would be surprised if they're sick and tired. Of absolutely. It at the end of I, I mean, you could totally understand if that was their stance. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Cause like you said, this has been going, I mean, this has been one of the bad guy tropes, even when bad guys were as simple as just, you know, you're the evil cowboy in black and I'm the good cowboy in white. Like this has been going on for over a century now, 150 years or some odd for as long as motion pictures have been around. So yeah, it would be completely understandable. I would just, yeah. again, I just like to hear from them just out of curiosity's sake. Is it wrong on its face or is it wrong? because it's a trope right because it's done over and over exactly again. And anyway we're gonna transition into some more positive things uh we have some awesome tech we have some great cars uh and we have q only lives once here mike and we have q we That's have a new q thing. yeah we got a brand new q john cleese is out one of my mortal enemies, Ben Wishaw, he gets the testy introduction as the new Q. He's equipping Bond here with a distress signal to go with his new PP7 pistol. He's even mocking Qs and Bond tech of the past with some uh, snidely remarks. Were you expecting an exploding pen? We don't really go for that anymore. It's a great line, and yes. I hope that line wins you back on the Ben <laughs> Wishaw train because the man's a great actor, and you can't hold these grudges like you do. And I don't, I still don't get why you hold the grudge that you do have for Mary Poppins Returns. But we need you to deal with it at some. Ben point, knows huh? why. Ben knows why. <laughs> Look, I love this character, and I think he's written really well throughout the plot. I love how him and Bond figure out the hacking. Right. Yeah. And I, I love how both of his gizmos, the gun that has the palm print, like you said, and then the uh, transmitter, the radio transmitter, both of them are huge in the plot. And it's like they don't even bother with the rest. They just let it be tete-a-tete back and forth, like I said. But I love that Q becomes Bond's guy in the chair through the central sequence yeah. of subterranean London. However, I think we got to finally recognize... That James Bond is the greatest word searcher ever. <laughs> the fact that he's able to find the word Granborough in yes. all of that gibberish yes. on screen and then figure out that this, this is a map of subterranean London. And Q's like, oh, quite right, quite right. Yeah. It makes even less sense that this guy has not held it together mentally or physically for the entire film. And he's able to find six different two-letter codes within this line of code. The Matrix Ridiculous. is flashing on the screen. And he's like, oh, that's a tunnel in London. <laughs> John Nash has got nothing on James Bond. Let's just put it that way. But, Michael, we have the quintessential James Bond car for the 50th anniversary James Bond, the Aston Martin DB5, which is the car of Goldfinger, Thunderball, the first three Brosnan films, and now four of the five Daniel Craig films, and I think they have the DBS, Aston Martin DBS in the other one, so this is the car of James Bond. I loved how they used it in the finale, on how it ambushes the, the bad guy henchman there that shouldn't have been sent in early, and then I love how the helicopter destroys it and you get the greatest of great smoldering daniel craig reaction shots that he's ever given in this <laughs> series uh, full of smoldering reaction shots when that car is destroyed i have no idea how you would research such a thing <laughs> but i would love to see the direct correlation of 
value of Aston Martins vis-a-vis their use in James Bond movies. And you, and you see the effect that one has had on the other. And, like, I can't be convinced mm-hmm. that there aren't some people of means that would buy Aston Martins that don't fancy themselves of wanting to live the super spy lifestyle anyway, because what do you do if you have all that money anyway? That they aren't buying that car because it's on James Bond. Like, there's got to be some people that are like that out there. I would guess that most people are like that out there. <laughs> I think if I became a rich bastard, I would. that would be the car that right. I would go for. It, right. right. So, yeah. I, I, would lo- I don't know how that study gets done, but I'm demanding that study get done. I want that study as well. That's a good one. Anyway, Mike, we got another segment here. There's a reason tomorrow never dies. It's because these villains, they just can't seem to kill it. All right, so cards on the table. What the big bad in Silva is doing here is kind of diabolical, and we've already went over this part. Mm-hmm. Unlike most Bond bad guys throughout ever, mm-hmm. Silva actually succeeds in a lot of ways. Like, we discovered that Bardem Silva has the MI6 undercover agent list towards the end of the beginning of this movie and every week that passes he's posting to YouTube for all the world to see the names and photos of five such undercover agents blowing their cover and compromising them and Silva even does a great job of covering his tracks because for a long time M and all of MI6 are without a clue as to who he is who's posting these names what he wants in return etc agents are dying too I mean, it's not right. just like, happening, he's they're winning. dying. Yeah, he's, he's, he wins. He's getting this. The face-to-face between Silva and Bond is also fascinating. Silva wastes no time in sowing distrust between Bond and M. He's showing Bond how M has lied to him throughout his life, including his results of his re-examination to get back into the field just now from his mm-hmm. quote-unquote death, how M set him up for failure. He's starting to woo Bond over to him at best, or at least make Bond question his loyalty at worst, which, as we already discussed at the top of the spoiler section, would have been enough for to push me over the edge. I would have joined Silva without batting an eye. That's neither <laughs> here nor there. But he's got this cool, diabolically evil demeanor, which I think is pretty legendary for the lore of James Bond as well. Like we talked about, he doesn't just want Severine killed. He wants Bond to take Severine's life into his hands and when Bond doesn't do so, he just kills her without any remorse or anything. And when Bond thinks that he's got the drop on Silva to capture him with that well-timed or poorly timed, we should say, rescue of James Bond, (laughs) Silva reveals to have a backup plan for the backup plan. He's able to complete an MI6 hack while incarcerated in MI6 which leads to this chase through the London tube system, complete with costume changes and a race to kidnap M while she's testifying in front of Parliament. Everything Silva does is badass. He ends up with a gun pointed at M's head multiple times in this movie. Silva wins. Silva wins, and I'm glad you took it from that perspective of Silva winning because I wanted to take it from the perspective of Bond losing here. So let's get a quick dueling, you know, summary. Right. And this is totally just uh, taking way too much time, but all right, here we go. Bad guy gets away on the train. Money Penny relegated to desk job forever. So far, losing. M's reputation destroyed. M fired. Bond shot, and he's dead. He's assumed dead for a whole Adele song. <laughs> Giving in to all of his vices on a sex, alcohol, scorpion pill island, uh, Silva attacks MI6, blows it up in front of M to taunt her. <laughs> right, exactly, for no other reason. 
Bond comes back out of some sick form of obligation. But <laughs> really, I think he just wants revenge for the, you know, bullets in his chest. Anyway. <laughs> As anybody would. <laughs> he's still clearly traumatized. M breaks federal law, falsifying his tests to help him pass, putting... So many people in danger. Right. Putting, uh, put him back out of the field. It's not It's not the kosher thing to do. I agree. Bond does not care that security guards are, are killed, that field agents are killed on camera. He doesn't care. He doesn't. So many people are assassinated. He does not give any Fs, like we said. He's a broken he go- man. He's a broken. He goes to the casino. He befriends Severine, who takes him to Silva, and Bond allows her to die. A humiliating death. (laughs) Just humiliating for Bond. For her, it's terrible. Silva wanted to be captured. He hacks MI6 again, escapes. He somehow planted an explosive device in that cavern where he knew Bond and him would have a third-to-last Third to final face-off. <laughs> Crashing the entire subway on Bond's head. Uh-huh. So we basically have, uh, I mean, we got to hand it to Silva. He's got the chance to perform the act of greatest, most delicious, dramatic irony ever of shooting up the oversight meeting where M is trying to be proven ineffective right. at keeping the people of England safe. <laughs> this is a parliament oversight committee. And he of course was staging to shoot that up. He does. And he proves it the greatest point of poetic justice ever. So again, bond fails to stop any of this from happening. Silva is winning. Okay. M escapes bond in act three whisks M away to his childhood home to try and quote unquote, save her life. Correct? Which we've never seen before. Yeah. This is like the Western James Bond. The the last act is a Western. It is a final showdown in this sparsely populated area. It's just one Kincaid, just one Albert Finney Mm -hmm. over there. And not only does Silva destroy Bond's home just with relish, but even though Bond kills Silva, Silva still kills M. And you gotta wonder, did the good guys lose or did Bond actually win because he all along wanted to have M, Dame Judi Dench, who's been his nemesis <laughs> this whole series. He wanted to use her as bait. He, he wanted to break free of the chains of having mom looking over his shoulder, too. So or, Bond, yeah. Bond is just basically the rebellious 20-something that's ready to move out of the house and start his own life. Exactly. <laughs> this is a psychological clusterfuck. Freudian clusterfuck is what this is. <laughs> I guess, though, if you complete that analogy, that means Bond has his older brother kill his mother so he can claim the house for himself, which really gets into a messy situation there, if you're going with now, that analogy. this is your psychological <laughs> cluster, you know let's, what. Let's, let's start wrapping up with Goldfingers, where we type out how we'd fix the problem with the antagonism to defeat Bond once and for all. I would do nothing. I, I mean, I, I don't know what more Silva could have done here because he ends up having a video game slash episode eight style advantage where Luke Skywalker is standing on the ground of the salt flats and Kylo Ren is up in the walker just firing bullets at like Silva's in a chopper pointed at Bond at one point at his house. Th- this game should be over. I guess I would not get out of the helicopter. He kind of checkmates Bond a couple of times, but he also gets lucky because if not for Kincaid's worst, you know, choice of using a flashlight. I mean, it, look, old people, their eyes, they tend to go. <laughs> and uh, 
<laughs> I was not. I was gonna make a debate there, a debate joke. I'm not gonna. Anyway, <laughs> we've gone too long as it is. Albert Finney's using a flashlight there. If he wasn't using a flashlight there, I don't know if Silva finds him. Maybe mm. he does. Maybe he goes to the church regardless. But after getting home alone, <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, he didn't have to get home alone. He could have just sent the chopper in first. And yeah, and just just, set, just level the entire town. Level the entire house, blow it up, just just missiles. Like what? None of these copters ever have missiles either. Like it's the dumbest thing. Okay, yeah, copter has missiles. True. That's a good point. Pump that house full of few missiles and then you know comb the wreckage. Right. But all right, I do think the fact that he has to prove to M his moral moral superiority or to prove to her that her moral superiority is dead wrong. That is probably where he goes wrong. The fact that he needs to basically have her admit she was wrong, mm. to have her admit that, you know, the fact that she didn't, you know, save him when she could have and she had this the ultimate hubris wartime. Got the best of him. Well, yeah, his hubris, but her wartime pragmatism that led to his being tortured and disfigured. That is what he wants to prove to M as the fundamental evil evil of this whole thing. He just wants to have M die knowing that M was wrong and to admit that M was wrong when, in fact, these are stubborn British wartime pragmatists who have Winston Churchill bulldogs on their desks, and they're never going to admit that, he, that they're wrong. He could have just broken in to M's apartment like Bond has done in every single one of these fucking movies and torture her to death to right. get his comeuppance. Right. He didn't need to do anything. Any of this stuff, but he wanted her to shoot him and her at the same time because he's had a death wish this whole time. I think Bond still kind of used M as bait, and I don't know how much we should praise Bond in this movie because he might be the most evil hero, the most villainous hero in history because he killed this guy by stabbing him in the back. Yeah. Literally, yeah. the lowest of the low hero moves you can ever use. That was not lost on me. The delicious, dramatic irony of James Bond, a hero, the, the biggest movie hero of all time, stabbing the villain in a back in a church and still having the damsel in distress die of embarrassment afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> right? James, I mean, that's what this, so you're saying this, this installment of James Bond just should have been called <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> He's this much of an asshole. Yeah, I don't. James I like, Bond, mean, it's, douche. It's a great movie, but like when you think about it, yeah. Oh my effing god, he is scum. You He's scumbag. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. This is not. This is not shine favorably on the James Bond character. And we can wrap it up here with our last segment, which is usually the most fun. Although I don't know how we're getting more fun than saying James Bond's a real dickhead here. Uh, license to bill. We tally up and account for all the damages Bond caused and what it might cause. I I'm going to start with the opening sequence in Istanbul. Just in means of tallying, we have a train, a crane, and several automobiles, all while sporting a gunshot wound to the chest, which is actively fucking bleeding. Bond is getting rid of all these things. Rooftops damaged in another Bond movie. Uh, those fruit stands just crushed by those vehicles that were also destroyed. And like you said, vehicles on the streets, vehicles on the train. Not a good day for Istanbul. No. I'm going to put a number on this. I don't know if it's as big of a damage you know, number as some others that we're going to talk about, but 300,000? Yeah. Well, you only have the one car of the train that took damage, really. So I think that's probably fair. 300,000. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, we have the top floors of an MI6 HQ building are just yeah. blown to smithereens. 
and never mind the cost of having to recreate MI6 and that entire setup and all the, <laughs> I mean, all, oh my God, in the World War II tunnels of London, and I mean, to renovate those, the insurance, The insurance payments to all those family members that have lost their loved ones, which are dead now. 200 million? Yeah, all right, we'll say 200 million sounds good. All right, so 200 million, 300,000 next. We have a high-tech skyscraper's top floors and all its <laughs> glass within. And we have one Bond print gun that he loses yes. at the casino, probably eaten by a Komodo dragon. Yes, the gun is probably what? The gun is probably 10,000 and then the glass on the side of a skyscraper that might be one sheet. I don't know what that costs. I mean, that's a, that's a costly fix. By the glass glacier? That's not the word. No, anyway, it is now. <laughs> another hundred thousand at least. All right, we'll call it a hundred thousand. So we're up to what? We're at like uh, two hundred point four million right now. Not bad. Yeah, yeah, three hundred point four. Okay, three hundred point yeah. four million. That's not bad for a Bond movie. Then we have the entire London fucking subway system. <laughs> 10 billion pounds because that is the courtroom then it's the entire underground all of the tube whatever they call it it's it sounds cooler when they say it 10 billion 300 million <laughs> point four that one tube track has a hole in it now which needs to be repaired the tr- entire car needs to be repaired other trains can't go on that track so they need to be circumvented which is going to cause traffic jams and holdups and delays that's that's 10 billion is probably going off easy taxes in london are going to be raised people taxes are a problem <laughs> and then as the last thing of what's being uh ruined and completely destroyed i have james bond's backstory because it's yeah. really tough to retread from saying that james bond definitively is not a code name and it's just this one guy or his priceless childhood ho- home is <laughs> destroyed literally and albert finney is now homeless and look i mean can you Imagine the property value of that house. I mean, ten million. <laughs> Add another ten right. million. You get to wake up, drink your coffee, and look at the morning fields every uh, the the fjords. Oh my. Yeah, look, you might be able to sell that property without the house still for like fifty million. Look, we know it's, it's just... a giant ass caveat now. It's a huge crater filled with bullet holes, but it's still got good bones about it. Even at a police auction, that thing sells <laughs> for like fifty million. Come on. To a resort, for Christ's sake. <laughs> that is your James Bond character study of the movie Skyfall. We knew we went long. We knew we were going to anyway. Uh, because, like Mike said at the outset, probably on the Mount Rushmore of enjoyable James Bond films uh, and uh, just the best of the best for a litany of reasons. But as always, dear listener, we do want to hear from you. We want to hear your thoughts. Do you remember watching this movie for the first time? Have you just rewatched it or watched it for the first time recently? What are your thoughts? Have they evolved or progressed at all? Uh, what are your takes on the controversies surrounding the film? We want to hear all of that as well, as always, as any other thoughts, comments, questions, concerns that you may have about anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. You can leave us all of those on our social medias. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram, at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com, and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts. If you are listening to us, well, that wouldn't be happening, but if you're listening somewhere that we aren't that has podcasts, let us know, and we'll do our best to get on there. Mike, what are some words of wisdom, and what are what's coming next from MMO, as my tongue, I think, is starting to give up? Words of wisdom are simple. Do not 
do not make friends with James Bond. <laughs> do not have a relationship with this man in any way, shape, or form if you want to live. Period. End of story. Skyfall is the final word on this. <laughs> I think that's wise. I'd say those are wise words. Anyway, what's coming next is we don't quite know, but I think we got an Oscar race checkpoint for the beginning of your next week. Otherwise, we have movie review season before award season. So we're going to talk through the awards calendar in the next ORC, but we have movie review season coming up and we got a bunch of Oscar contenders to hit at various spots along their, you know, journeys. Uh, some that we're reviewing early in film festivals, some that we're going to, you know, catch on Netflix and streaming services and some that we might even go to movie theaters for if we, and when we can. So movie review season is on. It is so wild to think, that if you're listening to this at the start of October, instead of being in the last two months in the home stretch, right. we have six months to go. <laughs> Just getting started. <laughs> Guys, when reality or that reality of where the new awards calendar is right now sucks, you can come listen to these shows, watch these movies, and hopefully share some laughs with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you all very soon. See ya. See <laughs> ya.